0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We are going to uh, finish off our series on the seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3. So if you want to go ahead and turn to Revelation 3, we'll start at verse 14. Um, as you know, i uh, or some of you may know, I am a teacher, so I'm not a preacher, so I like a little interaction. So that means you get to talk to once in a while. And um, as far as introducing this message, um, what I, what I want to do is actually start with maybe the punchline. Um, this is a, a profound letter that greatly impacts churches in the 21st century, churches in Western, uh, Western world, Western culture. Um, and the two things that come out of this that the church is rebuked for are self-sufficiency and... Um, uh, my mind just went blank. Uh, hang on a second, let me get my notes up. and complacency. Self-sufficiency is self-reliance. It's dependent on your own resources, your own power. Compliance or complacency is an exceptionally high prideful view of your resources, of your power, so to speak. Um, it. These two things are manifested in, in our culture in many, many ways, and what I would like you guys to just openly speak of is name some ways in our world today, whether it's an institution, whether it's a person, whether it's whatever, that displays self-sufficiency or complacency. What's that? Prayerlessness, okay? What else? What's that? Busyness? What's that? Lack of churches? Oh, church attendance, yes. So put the spiritual side of it away. Just name some things in our world that reflect, display, manifest materialism. Yeah, what's that? Consumerism. America? (laughs) Um, No, you're right. It, 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 It it is our worldview. It at every turn, it is our worldview. And it is a struggle in our world to separate self-sufficiency and complacency from dependence on a god. But that's the struggle that we're going to deal with today in uh, this letter to Laodicea. Um, Let me give you a quick historical overview of this letter. Laodicea was a city not far from Colossae. So Colossae is the uh, city that Paul wrote the letter of Colossians to. It's about 13 miles away from Colossae. It's about six miles away from a town called Hierapolis. Um, Its claim to fame was it was very, very wealthy. It was the wealthiest um, city in that region. And it primarily was built where two of the key trade routes crossed. And because of that, it was always very wealthy. But then in addition, it developed three really primary industries that even made it more wealthy. Number one was a banking industry. So for that whole region, it served as the banking center. Second, it um, produced uh, a wool. So it had highly bred some sheep. And this wool was world-renowned, especially in this region. It was a black, shiny wool that they made all kinds of clothes for, and it was greatly sought after. And then the third industry was medicine. And they actually made a lot of ointments um, for ears, for eyes, etc. The the most famous was for uh, an eye salve that, that you would put on. The one negative thing about Laodicea was it was kind of built on a high plateau up above the valley and it had no water. So there was no valid water source for it. And what they did was they piped in water both from Hierapolis and from Colossi. And Hierapolis was to the south and it was at the base of a, a mountain range and it had hot springs. So it was a, a place where many people from all over the, the region went to have medicinal therapeutic baths because of the mineral waters. Colossae had a great fresh cold water, pure source. They built aqueducts and pipes um, and brought that water all the way into Laodicea. By the time it got to Laodicea, whether it was the hot water coming from Hierapolis or the cold water coming from Colossae, it was lukewarm. So that sets us up for, I think, the letter. So let's, uh, let's stand and read this letter together. I'm going to begin Revelation 3, starting at verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. You may be seated. So as you, uh, this is the seventh time you've heard a letter and they basically have the same template, right? Um, There's a couple of noted differences with this letter that I will bring out as we kind of walk ourselves through it. But let's start um, with verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. As you know, these are titles that Jesus is giving of himself. The difference with this letter, these titles are not reflected in Revelation 1 during John's vision of Jesus. They are very specifically chosen to amplify the issue and to address the issue that the Laodicean church uh, finds itself in. So let me walk you through what these are talking about. The amen. The amen is used uh, in in Isaiah 65 and then amen is used as you guys would know probably as truly I say to you or verily, verily, I say to you in the Gospels. That's the same word. And what it means is that this is divine truth. It is guaranteed to be divine truth. Okay, so it's important. So that's the first title he uses. The second, the faithful and true witness. The faithful and true witness represents Jesus being the ultimate overcomer of this world system, right? The world that we live in, the brokenness, the sinful world that's ruled by Satan, that's Satan's kingdom, and that's where we are at physically, temporally right now. Jesus and Jesus alone has conquered this. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the only one that has represented God faithfully, truthfully in everything that he has done. Thirdly, the beginning of God's creation. This reflects back to John 1 and, and, and uh, Colossians 1 where it talks about Jesus being The creator, the sustainer of creation. So creation exists because of Jesus. So contra to Laodicea, which feels they are self-sufficient, Jesus is saying, no, I sustain everything. I sustain the universe. I sustain this church, not you. All right, so those are the, the three titles that he starts out with. Verse 15 normally would be where in the template the accommodations or the strengths of the church would be listed. Jesus would uh, give them um, encouragement and recognition for what they were doing right. Well, in in Laodicean's letter, there isn't anything they're doing right. At least it's not put in the letter. And think about... Put your place in the the Church of Laodicea's uh, position. These letters were sent to every church, so there's not just this letter. It doesn't only get sent to Laodicea. Um, They were puffed up. They thought they were rocking it. They thought they were doing everything that they should be doing. They uh, were wealthy. They were doing great. There wasn't any problems. They felt very blessed. Jesus says this verse 15 I know your works so again focus that works has been the focus of all of these letters and it it needs to be continuing the the focus of this letter as well you are neither cold nor hot would that you were either cold or hot so because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold I will spit you out of my mouth so what does he mean by that? I've heard this taught in a couple different ways. The way that it isn't is if these are terms for spiritual thermometer, so to speak, that hot is good, cold is bad. Um, that's really not what this text is saying. What he is talking about is the temperature. So when the water is in Hierapolis, it's It's hot. And it has, it's full of minerals. And you can have medicinal, therapeutic uh, work, if you will, done to you. You can rest in it and you can be healed. In Colossae, you can drink fresh, clear, cold water. You can be refreshed. It is the giving of life. When it gets to uh, Laodicea, it's loop temperature, room, room temperature, room Uh, lukewarm. It's not good for anything. As a matter of fact, what they used to do was they would fill uh, their jars during the day and they would let it sit all night to cool and get to a decent temperature so that then they could use it the next day. So again, focusing on works, what Jesus is saying is you are neither hot nor cold. You aren't able to do any works. So he is condemning their inability to do works, or he is stating that their works, in a sense, are barren. Okay? Works are a big deal, obviously. Uh, We know that. But let's just think about this for a second. Here's a church, wealthy, and I'm going to picture a 21st century church. Uh, This church has a big campus. It's got a lot of people coming to it. It's got a great worship Uh, band. They may even have recording stars on it. It's got a great preacher. He may be broadcast all over the world and be writing books, etc., etc. None of that proves to Jesus that this church is doing works that are not barren. From the world's value system, from the world's eyes, they're highly successful. From Jesus' eyes, they're completely failing the measure. And this would have just been a shock, I think, uh, to the elders, to the churches, or to the Church of Laodicea. Um, It's not like they cognitively knew this. This was a a deep-seated perspective. This was a worldview that they had that they were doing everything that they should be doing, that they were successful, that they didn't need anything, that they were rich, they were wealthy. And Jesus is going to go on to say it's just the opposite, the absolute opposite. So let's reflect on this as a church and personally for for a minute. Does heritage believe itself to be self-sufficient? Are we complacent? We live in a country that is abounding in these values. We live in a valley, the Rogue Valley, that promotes, that glorifies a can-do attitude, right? I don't need anybody. That's why people move to Southern Oregon, to be out on their own, to live completely self-sufficient. Do those values seep into heritage? I think they do. Do they seep into you and I? I I think they do. When I look in the mirror, I think I can see it. When I look at my wife and my kids, I think I can see it. When I meet with the elders, I think I can see it. So this is a real deep-seated issue that we are challenged with. Perhaps more so than than even the church in Laodicea what are some ways again this is your opportunity to talk what are some ways to combat self-sufficiency complacency spiritually Prayer. prayer good always say prayer what's that I can't hear you. Repentance. Good. We're going to get to that one. What else? Yeah. Being in the Word. What else? What? The cross? Spiritual disciplines? Worship? Submersing yourself? In the biblical worldview, Our, we were created by God to, uh, to learn and then live out a worldview. So wherever we're put, in whatever time, whatever place, we are going to absorb and, and think and react in ways that have been formed by the community, by the world, by the culture that we are put into. Now, there's pluses to that, but there's also minuses. And each one of us has negative. We have minuses. We have garbage from the world in which we're born in and in, in, uh, influenced by. And so part of our sanctification, that big theological word, is, is getting rid of those as we grow and, look and uh, become more Christ-like. Back to our text. Jesus goes on, verse 17. Again, he's he's, he's now switching to irony. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. And I need nothing. So here's the church giving themselves an analysis. They're taking an online survey. And they're saying, we're hitting it. We're getting fives all the way down the line. Right? And this is really what they believe. Jesus then gives his assessment. Now again, this is the amen. This is the faithful and true witness. So his words are true. He says, not realizing that you were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's like a thunderbolt to the church that would have made them gasp, would have taken the air out of their lungs. These five adjectives, um, the first two kind of can get coupled together. They're general, talking about, in a sense, wretchedness can be represented by helplessness, and, um, what's the other one? Pitiable can be hopelessness. So they're helpless, and they're hopeless. And then specifically, the poor, blind, and naked directly tear down the three things that Laodicea was known best for commercially, for profitability. So he starts out and says, I counsel you to buy. Now again, they're wealthy. So he's using that in an ironic way to say, instead of buying your worldview from the world, instead of buying this idea that you're wealthy, When in fact you're poor, buy from me, what? Refined gold. Well, we know gold is a very valuable metal. We uh, know in the Bible, refining process, what does it do? It heats up metal, it removes the impurities, the impurities tend to float to the top, and then they can get skimmed off, right? And then you have a more pure metal that's left. And it's the exact same process for you and I. We undergo heat in the form of a trial, in the form of an affliction. Um, And the impurities, if, if things go according to the spiritual recipe, if you will, the impurities get scooped off and we become pure through that affliction, through that trial. And so this is what he's proposing that the church at Laodicea buy from him. Second... Buy white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. This is again in direct contrast to these black, shiny, beautiful garments. I think they would we would all be amazed at the workmanship and the craftsmanship of them. But according to Jesus, they're worthless. They're barren works. Instead, white clothes from Jesus. Well, what does white clothes mean? Especially in the book of Revelation, right? White clothes represent the righteous acts of the saints. So it's the good works, it's the eternal works of the saints, right? And lastly, he says, um, Salve, I'm sorry. The shame of your nakedness not may not be seen in the Old Testament, especially, but uh, also in the New. Nakedness represented. Shame and divine judgment. So when Israel was described as a naked um, uh, woman, it would be an adulterous woman that had um, uh, worshipped other gods, for instance. And they were naked before a righteous God without any righteousness of their own. And then salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So the salve or the ointment that they made isn't what they need. They need the ointment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Those of us that are parents, which uh, are quite a few of us, um, and all of us at some point have been parented by somebody, um, know that this this is part of Part of human life. This is even part of the animal kingdom, right? But let me read uh, Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as a father, the son in whom he delights we tend to look at it the opposite if we are being afflicted if we find ourselves in a trial we look at it as something we want to get out of we want to run away from it we view it sometimes even as a curse from god what did i do wrong what am i why am i in this situation well you may not have done anything wrong we live in a broken world we live in a broken Creation that isn't operating the way it's supposed to. God isn't behind every bad thing that happens, but he will use every bad thing that happens for the good of his people. And he will empower us through that trial to grow, to be mature, to be refined, to become, in, the, in a sense, more Christ-like. He then gives uh, an imperative. Be zealous and repent. So the the imperative is to be zealous. So he is commanding them to be zealous, as opposed or in opposition to lukewarm. They were spiritually barren. Jesus is saying you need to be spiritually awake. And then he says, repent. Repent actually in the grammar is an outworking of the imperative. So when you become zealous, the repentance will follow. Okay. And the repentance is a good work. That is a work that will survive, if you will, the refining fire, the final judgment fire, not refining fire, the judgment fire of the day of the Lord. For those of you that are familiar with that term, there will be a time when everyone's works are judged. And um, 1 Corinthians 3 talks about with Paul that we all build on the work of Jesus Christ. Some build with gold and silver, some build with wood and straw. Those that build with wooden straw, it will burn up. It doesn't keep them from going into heaven, but their works won't follow them. They will be, in a sense, naked. Verse 20, uh, this is one of the most famous verses in the Bible. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. So this verse most often has probably been used for evangelism. How many have heard it used in a way to lead somebody to the Lord? Nothing wrong with that, but it has more impact in, in the context of this letter. And I want to I wanna paint a picture of, of this. So here we have Jesus Christ, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the Creator, and sustainer of the universe. Jesus, his, his, one of his primary missions was to create a new people. He created a new people that we call the ecclesia, that we call the church, that we are a part of. right? And he did that by taking on our flesh, becoming a human, by living a perfect life, by taking away the sins of the world, by taking away the wrath, by taking on the wrath of the sins that we committed, being crucified, died, resurrected, ascended, and placed on the throne so that, according to Ephesians, the church could fulfill its mission. And what is our mission? Our mission is to do good works. Our mission is to be conduits in this broken and fallen world that's ruled by Satan, we are to be ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven, ambassadors of the kingdom of Christ and allow his love, his grace, and his value system to mold and shape and be a witness to him and to his Father. That Jesus Positions himself outside this church. He controls everything, right? He has authority over everything. Uh, I, I, can't, I can't think of the guy's name on that Marvel um, movie, but it's the, the, the most powerful guy. He snaps his fingers, and half the population of the. What's his name? Yeah. He could have done that. He could have sent an earthquake. There's earthquakes there all the time. There was an earthquake um, in Turkey a couple days ago. Um, He could have sent a pandemic. He could have done all kinds of things to just wipe away this church. He didn't. He positions himself outside the door, and he knocks. And he gives them an invitation. What does he say? If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. In the ancient Near East, uh, sharing a meal is is fellowshipping. It's sharing your life. Jesus gives the opportunity to reestablish fellowship. So these people are his sons and daughters. They are saved. Christians, And yet, there is a barrier, there's a door there of their sin, of their complacency, of their self-sufficiency that they need to repent of. Repentance is signified by the opening of the door. Jesus wants to reestablish fellowship. He's leaving the 99, in a sense, and going after the 1. He's pursuing the Laodicean church. Does that make sense? Isn't that a beautiful picture of the grace of Jesus Christ? Verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. We, this is an eschatological uh, perspective if we are conquerors, what, is, what does that mean? Well, in this context, it really means overcoming the world. Overcoming the world's system. And it's Prince Satan. We have got to train our minds, train our worldview, to think on the heavenly things, as uh, Colossians 3 says. We have to replace the values, the ethics what we think is right, what the world thinks is right, with instead what Jesus thinks is right. Because they are not the same. They are diametrically opposed. And it is a daily grind. It is not anything we're going to be free of until we see the Lord face to face. But we lean into it. We have to develop uh, almost a befriended Attitude towards trial and affliction. We have to look towards them, not run away from them, but be patient, be still in it, be seeking the Lord, be creating zealousness. Each one of us, I think, does spiritual growth or, or, or recenters ourselves with Jesus in unique ways. That's great. That's part of developing your zealousness, is, is getting. Seating yourself before the Lord, whatever that looks like for you. But it needs to be regular because we are attacked regularly with the worldview of our world. And it pulls us, it seduces us, it influences us away from Jesus Christ and produces a door between him and us. Lastly, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is the uh, standard seven-letter exhortation um, reminding us that this message is not just from John. It's from the Holy Spirit himself and also reminding us it's not just for the letter or for the Church of Laodicea. It's for all churches. So let me just close with a couple thoughts. In this letter, Laodicea, unlike the other churches, has no internal or external conflict. It's a pretty happy place without struggle. Which, knowing what we've just talked about, is part of the reason they had such blindness to their actual condition. Affliction is something we do not seek. It is not something... um, we need to pursue. It will hit. It will come. It is part of this human experience. It's not a judgment from God. It is just the way things are in a broken world. How do we combat it? We exercise faith. We exercise our spiritual disciplines. We meet together. We love one another. We, we express the love of Christ to one another. All of these things help build us up, build our spirit up to attack the, the seeds, if you will, of self-sufficiency, the seeds of complacency that fall on us all the time in our world. We need to develop a comfort level with affliction, with trials, and to learn how to experience the, the, the peace that passes all understanding that only comes from Jesus Christ, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the creator and sustainer of life. Yes, we hate afflictions. Their source, again, is ultimately sin. Um, But we have the divine antidote, the divine antidote of grace. And we sang about it. Mitch mentioned it. Grace. Grace is the antidote to this if we walk in grace if we recognize our sinfulness see ourselves as sons and daughters of god and just walk ourselves through all of the theology of who we are in christ that's the antidote knowing who we are loving one another living it out God freely gives us grace anew every day, enough to get us through that day. Walk in this knowledge. Build your doctrine of affection around this truth. You and I, in heritage, will reign with Jesus on his throne. There is nothing in the universe that can stop that. There is no authority, no power that can keep that from happening. We're going to close in prayer. Um, I'm going to start it, and then uh, you guys will just have some time, personal time with the Lord. And then Paul's going to come up and finish the prayer as well as lead us right into communion. You may feel or you may already be experiencing a zealousness in your spirituality. If so, praise God. I would encourage you to pray for um, discernment, for finding new things that are impurities in your spiritual life to, to be refined, to be cleared off. You may be convicted. Hallelujah. Praise God. Lean into that. Go to the Lord and repent. You may not even think this applies to you. If that's the case, I pray that you ask for truth, that you ask for a fresh, discerning way. Um, ask for knowledge. Seek knowledge. You may not even be a Christian. If you aren't, I encourage you to take this opportunity to go to the Lord and open the door. He and He alone is the Savior of the world. He and He alone sustains you and sustains everything. He and He alone gives eternal life and gives purpose. Go to Him Repent, recognize, repent your sins and call him Lord and Savior. Father, we thank you for this letter. We thank you for your word and your spirit working in each one of us uniquely in response to it. I pray that heritage be spiritually zealous. I pray that our works be eternal, that they do good things, that they survive the fire of judgment that they further the kingdom father let us walk in a way that is worthy of our lord and savior jesus